Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Okay, welcome everyone to episode nine of the Rust Belt Rundown. I'm your host, Paul O'Connor. And on this episode, we are joined by Steve Peplin, the CEO of Talon Products. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. How is everything going your way? Everything is great. Just peachy. <laughs> Appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time. Um, first and foremost, for people that do not know, can you just share us uh, with the background about Talon Products and how it has evolved over the years? Well, Talon Products is a high volume, high speed metal stamping company, contract manufacturer. We're sort of misnamed. You know, all manufacturers want to have a product line. They feel that's the holy grail where all the money is going to be made. So I, 35 years ago, we thought we'd name the company Talon Products and knowing that, thinking that eventually we'll have a product line. <laughs> we did fool around with products uh, and having our own products. And it's a whole different game, product development than contract manufacturing. What we found is that we're really good at contract manufacturing, but the marketing and distribution and the rest of the rest of the puzzle that uh, that, that it takes you have to solve a complex puzzle to be a products a product developer as opposed to a contract manufacturer. So we, we make parts for other people. You go to a building products trade show, for instance, the roofing show. Our parts are literally on every aisle in the show, but you'll never see the brand talent products. Our brand is only known among people who need to have a manufacturer, a metal parts manufacturer. Got it. Okay. Um, you have one of the classic entrepreneur stories, right? So you started in 1986 with a little over $2,000 and, and two partners. Um, what made you want to take the plunge into starting your own company? Yeah. I've never, I've never really had a job. I, I've always worked <laughs> for myself. I mean, I mean, when I was 10 years old, I, was shoveling driveways and mowing lawns. We grew, we grew to eventually painted houses. And, you know, we just always kind of, I was always self-employed. And uh, I, was, uh, I, was at a, I was at a codings conference. Codings meaning like high-performance paints, you know. And the guy next to me, uh, you know, what's your family do? And what do you do? And where you're from? We'll just have making small talk. He says, oh, your family's in manufacturing. I need a half a million of these. And he held up a part as a four inch disc used in the roofing industry. I said, I don't know anything about manufacturing, but I'll take it home to my family and see if they're interested. How much do you want to pay and how many do you want? You know, so I need half a million of them they're 15 cents a piece. So I said, well, 75 grand. I'm thinking it's, I'll take this to the family business. Maybe there'll be a few shekels for me left over, you know? Yep. So I offered it to him at a Sunday dinner. My parents were still alive and we would have a whole, the whole family for dinner, dinner every Sunday. And uh, my dad had reasons why it wasn't appropriate for their factory. And my brother pulled me aside and said, just sell the job. You and I'll do it. We'll figure out a way. So I thought I was going to just be a sales rep or you know, broker or something. And uh, then the first meeting, my brother, my, my brother the next day said, uh, Okay, well, don't, don't sell it until Monday or Tuesday until I can make sure we can make it for less than 15 cents. So he said, he calls me Monday and says, okay, we can do it for 13.8 cents. So we don't have to be 13.8. We can be 14.8. He said, don't be greedy. We're going to make plenty of money at 13 cents. 
to sell the job. So I sold the job. First, this is a funny story. The first meeting we had, he said, so I'm thinking that's 100% my deal. You know, I'm going to get a, like a commission or a rent fee or finder's fee or something, you know. He said, uh, he said, okay, now we're going to be a third, a third, a third. I'm like, a third? Why, why do I only get a third? I thought it was my company. He goes, now nah, you're going to be a third. I get a third. And a guy named John Talon's going to be a third. And uh, Talon's a die maker, you know, and trust me, we need one of these. I said, what's a die maker? Why do we need one? <laughs> he said, the die maker, if you're going to be a metal stamper. No, what he said was, if we're going to be a metal stamper, we need a die maker for a partner. I'm like, what's a metal stamper and why do we need a die maker? <laughs> he said, metal stamping is the process we're going to use to manufacture these. We're going to start a company to manufacture. So I inadvertently started a company. I really just wanted to sell a deal, you know? Yep. So, so how did Talon get his name on it? How did that come about? Well, it's a cool name, you know, and I had, uh, there was another product, another company in town called Pepco. And I thought Peplin products doesn't sound as cool as Talon products. And that's really kind of how it started. So in the, in the first year, the first job, Talon products was a single manila folder. I still have the folder. It says wow. Talon products on it. There was just going to be like one project, but you know, we did well with it. And so we said, well, let's, let's do another project and find another part we can manufacture. And it went on from there, you know, but pretty soon, uh, I mean, you know, we all quit our regular jobs and or sold our companies and threw in with Talon products. And that was, that was 1986. That was the fall 1986. We started in March 86. Then by the fall, we were running, you know, producing parts. So the first year we were just virtual. We, you know, we didn't have actually one of these places you ask me kind of the history of the company. Yeah. The evolution of it. So the first year, what I call like version 1.0. See, matter of fact, on my shirt, it says 5.0. Version 1.0 was the first iteration of the company. We were, a, uh, we were a virtual company before they had virtual companies, before it was a thing. <laughs> before it was a thing, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we bought the steel. We owned the tool. We, we contracted out the stamping, the metal stamping, the metal forming. Then we contracted the packaging to somebody else. And we just wrote the checks and... It made the money. And then, uh, then the second year, we, for Talon 2.0, we went into John Talon's uh, machine shop. And we became like kind of a tenant of, of his. Uh, and then, then we only had a couple thousand square feet. But we were a real company at this point. You know, we, we were small, one step up from a garage shop. And we were small. We only had about 3,000 square feet. But we were a real company with, you know, with, with the press and employees. And we you know, actually did our own manufacturing. Then version 3.0 uh, coincided with uh, a move to West 68th in Madison. We were there for 15 years. We eventually, we moved into about 15,000 feet. Eventually we uh, grew to 58,000. We kept taking over the buildings next to us and kind of eventually we had a whole neighborhood. Version 4.0 is when we moved to Cochrane, our, our present uh, location in Cochrane Avenue near Collinwood. We moved into about 100,000 square feet Today we have north of 200,000 and the version, we're, we're, we're well into version 4.0. Now, every time we had a new version like this, it, this wasn't a real iteration. I mean, it wasn't a real hard stop in a different company. It yeah. was just sort of a conceptual idea of the company was always evolving and always growing. But our, our location would change and sometimes partnerships changed. You know, I started off with three guys at a third each 
we brought another guy in. So, so, so the different iterations of the company, we, we kind of kid around and say there was version 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Oftentimes they coincided with a physical move to a bigger, better facility. And oftentimes they coincided with a uh, change in structure of the company, change in ownership structure. We started off with three partners. Soon we had four. Then it was after about five or 10, 10 years in 1996. We started in 86. In 1996, we went down to two partners. Then we went up to three for a while. <laughs> <laughs> then we went back to two. Um, right now, the way it stands, I own two thirds of the company and my partner Pete Accordi owns one third. So we have two partners. Got it. I, I want to back up to, there's a lot of power in the origin story of, of the concept of just doing, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people that are thinking about starting a company are somewhat, they're obviously everybody's cautious when they do that, but they're over worried. They're, they're, they may not want to start until it's perfect or they don't think it's the right time. And there's a lot of power in just doing to your point. And you know, your brother said, listen, just sell it and we'll figure it out. There's a lot yeah. of power. So I've always worked for myself, right? And so I used to be a contractor and I like I said, as I started, I said, when I was 10 and 12 years old, I was mowing lawns. So I've always worked for myself. Mm -hmm. It was very much, first time I had a real company, a decent sized company as a contractor that employed a lot of adults. I was, I was like 20 years old and I was terrified, absolutely terrified that these people, there were families out there relying on me to pay them a paycheck and there's children and you know, I was, I was like, all my employees, children and stuff. I was terrified mm -hmm. of the responsibility of that. I've got over it. I'm over it now. <laughs> That's good. That's <laughs> I've, done good. It, I've done it my whole life, you know, yep. but I, rem I remember that feeling really well. The first time I had employees, I, I remember the, the, the responsibility of, I have to make it. I have to, you know, this company can't fail because it never occurred to me. These guys would just go out and get another job. That, that, that thought never occurred, you know, yep. I was just, like, this is, they're relying on me, you know? Yep. And uh, so also when you start up, you, you work like round the clock, literally round the clock. You know, we were a construction contractor and we thought nothing of staying on a job site till two or three in the morning, driving back home, have a few beers, go to sleep for a couple hours and get up and go do it again. Yep. That, was, that was just the way you did it. You worked until the work was done. Yep. You didn't go home at five, you know, I mean, it was inconceivable. And that, that's kind of the the entrepreneur way is, you know, and, and it's still, that, that, that's, that, that, that concept still holds today. Out in Silicon Valley, they expect 100 hours, 80, 100 mm -hmm. hours out of people, and you don't get extra money, and you just lose your job if you don't, if you don't do that, you know, if you're not one of, the, one of the guys that's all in, you know, they sleep, they sleep in their offices. Um, we're much more, <laughs> we're much more mature. We're a 35-year-old company. <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah, you know how to work efficient, you know how to work smart. You're not a startup. Yeah, we're not a startup anymore. We're closer to the end than the beginning, as a matter of fact. Uh, <laughs> well, I really enjoyed reading the history on your site because it's not set up like about pages, about us pages are. And what I loved about it is that it includes a ton of built-in lessons. And a couple of those that I wanted to talk to you about, number one being don't, and, and a lot of them too, they're, they're, there's simplicity in them, right? But they need to be said because I think a lot of people get lost in the journey of starting their own company. So number one, uh, lesson number one, don't bite off more than you can chew. We're still lean. There are no waterfalls in the lobby. I love that. Um, if it doesn't add value for the customer, don't do it. 
talk to us about that and why you think sometimes people get lost in that and, and maybe they, they want a nice, a newer office and spend more money on it. Yeah, we, we literally, we were a bootstrapping company, which you don't hear that term thrown around a lot anymore, but it means, you know, you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps and we clawed our way up the glass wall with our fingernails. I mean, it was a, it was a hard way to go. We, we had $20 desks when we started. Literally, if we could have found them on a tree lawn somewhere and had a free desk, we would have had free <laughs> uh, just kind of the, that was in our DNA. Now that, that has evolved out over the years. We buy millions of dollars of new equipment now. But uh, the concept of being frugal is still very much in my partner and I's DNA. It's just the way we do business. Um, we try to be cost effective. Sometimes being cost effective means buy new. Sometimes it means buy used. We still buy million dollar pieces of equipment that are used and then we have them rebuilt. We do all the control work in house and the lubrication systems. We do that all in house. So we save a lot of money and there's, there's other reasons for doing that. You know, we have control, we have standardization, all yeah. our presses are set up exactly the same way that because we do all the controls in house. Um, yeah. The, um, the lean, lean is, uh, sorry about that. Lean is hyper important and not just lean in the manufacturing philosophy of lean manufacturing, but in the, in the colloquial term of lean, meaning that there's no fat, there's no moss growing on anybody in our shop. You walk in, there's uh, everybody's moving, everybody's going fast, the presses are running fast, the tow motors are going fast. Everything is, everything is uh, very, very productive. As a matter of fact, a metric around productivity that we're in the hundredth percentile. <laughs> Literally, we take a survey and we were in the hundredth percentile. We used to be the 99th percentile. Our sales per employee is about $750,000. Our industry average is about 105, 190. Wow. So we're three and a half times. I mean, by, by that, 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 that is a measure of productivity. How many, how much sales you have per employee. There's other measures of productivity, like your value add per employee. We're also way, way high on that. The value add is, you know, um, what, you're, what you're selling, less material cost and outside work because you can't really squeeze material costs and outside work. Everything else, labor overhead and profit, that's, that's what we get paid for. We get, we get the labor overhead and profit. I love how yeah. you guys do value add. I mean, that, that's a sports term. You know, they, they have, oh, you know, value. Oh yeah, they have value add and, and um, they, you know, they, they try to do it towards wins. You know, what is your yeah, value? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. You know, contributing yeah, 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 to win. Yeah, baseball, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Similar to you, it's just contributing to a sale. Same thing, right? right? I never thought about that analogy, though. That's great. Yeah. That's, you know, having a company is very similar to a sports team. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you are, we are all, all on the same team. You know, we all have the same goal. We share the numbers. We share it. We, we used to do a, a, a P&L every week, like a trial P&L. And we would have all the leadership of the company come into a room, and we'd look at it. And every week, we would have, you know, budget and, 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 and an actual. Now we do it uh, every month or every couple. We, we do it every month. But we share the numbers. We, we put out a uh, interim every two weeks. So we do two times a month. And we share the numbers with everybody. If you don't share the numbers with the leaders of the company, it's like asking them to play a, a sport, play a game, a team sport, yeah, without knowing the score. The score. Yeah, exactly. So you, have, you, have to, you have to share the score with everybody. It's tremendous. It really helps us. Yeah, we get a vested. Uh, everybody's vested. Everybody's, and then, of course, there's a component, 10% of the profit, goes to the leadership, you know, goes to the, the, the guys that run the company other than the owners. Yeah. And uh, well, it goes to them. It goes to all employees, I should say. You know, we, there's a split, there's a split between the leadership, and the leadership. You know, the, it's a, it's a, 
it's a uh, pro rata, you know. Yeah, that's the right way. I think that's the right way to do it. Um, All right. Another lesson I wanted to I wanted to ask you about, too, was focus, focus on a niche or two and become experts constantly improving. Go ahead. That's a that's a fairly it's a really one because. You know, we, we all read all the business books and go to the seminars and, you know, see, you know we study the gurus and wanna, wanna, we all want to be successful. Yep. And the gurus say, stick to your knitting, find something that you're good at and do it relentlessly. You have narrow focus and laser beam approach, right? Yep. And they also say, the, a whole other set of gurus say, be diversified and don't, don't have only one tool in your, in your quiver. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Be able to have multiple solutions and have, don't have one customer or one industry served. Well, yeah. you can't do both. I mean, they're yeah, polar which, opposite. Which one is it? Which one is it? Yeah, so what, we, what we do is we kind of do both. We, uh, we have a laser beam focus on the process. And the process is metal stamping. That's what we do. Well, we contract manufacturing out of metal, but that's stamping. We're not a foundry. We don't make parts out of wood. You know, we don't do electronics. We do metal stampings, high volume metal stampings. We have a specialty in stamping aluminum extrusions. Stamping, so, but, but it's still metal stamping. So our focus is on our process. Our diversification is an industry served. We predominantly, serve, but we were started off in the roofing industry. So that's still a very major part of what we do. And we do a lot of building products. We do LED lighting, roofing, and solar. Those are an automotive. So those are four big verticals, big categories of mar- big markets served. So the diversification comes in customers and in markets served, and the focus comes in the process that we employ. So we're kind of doing both. Okay. I want to back up to, there's a, there's a bunch of other lessons that we can get to, but I, I did want to ask, um, because you kind of briefly mentioned it, talk to us about the partnership philosophy that you guys were founded upon. Explain that. That's- that's everything. You know, uh, we have a core values approach where we have a four values. We used to have company values and there's 13 of them and then some of them were redundant and some, you know, nobody ever realized all 13. But when you have four core values, our values are safety, collaboration, tenacity, and respect. Safety is paramount in a metal stamping company because the accidents could be catastrophic. So we, we have a stellar safety record. Collaboration, that, that one kind of goes without saying. I mean, but we do say it and it is the overriding concern. But the real, where the rubber meets the road, the real practical value is collaboration. And that's the partnering aspect. We collaborate not just with our customers, but with our employees and our suppliers. I, like to, I liken it to three legs of a stool. You know, you need all three legs. You have to have a great, our, our, as in a metal stamping business, our material cost is 65% of what we sell. So it's very important, especially at high volume stampings like we do. So it's very important that we have good relationships with, with good relationships with our suppliers. Of course, it goes without saying that your employees are everything. That's what we're selling. And I always tell everybody, anybody can go out and buy a press. They're, they're out, they're available in the used market. Anybody can have a tool made. You can source the tool, have it made. Anybody can find a customer, you know, because the market sets the selling price. We don't set, we have a price we would like to get. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. The, market, the market sets the price for us and it's up to us up to my team to squeeze the labor overhead and profit, you know, yep. down to where there's a profit left over, you know? And, and that's, that's the people. I always tell my people that you guys are the, the difference and why we're such a high performer, why we win all the awards. We've got walls of awards. We've got probably 50 awards that we've won over the years. And uh, yeah, that's the people. So it's, it comes from the collaboration, which we, our value is collaboration. We could just as easily call that partnering. Yep. We called it uh 
we used to say, I do say, we've been partnering before partnering was cool. It wasn't a thing back in the early 80s. It became a thing like, I don't know when, 90s probably, you know, millennial, I don't know when it came a thing. But yeah. it, became, it became a buzzword, you know, and people kind of realized it is a, the business world had this epiphany. Wow, if we treat our suppliers important, treat them nice, maybe, yeah. it, maybe, maybe we'll both, you know, the rising title, raise all the ships, you know. Yeah. Yep. And, and it really works. We treat our suppliers well because, hey, we're the customer, just like we want our customers to treat us. Yep. Um, so shifting gears a little bit. So obviously manufacturing is such an important industry in the United States economy, particularly in the Rust Belt region. Uh, what meaning do you derive from the work you've been able to do in this region for over 30 years now? Well, there's uh, the M-O-N-E-Y. There's money. <laughs> yep. It's a no... The other thing, the other thing I like about this business is, and I, I had this in mind when I started. I used to be a rep. I used to work for a distributor, and whenever, whatever level of business you're on, you know, there's always somebody trying to go around you. You know, if you're the contractor, people want to call would call the distributor themselves and buy it direct from the distributor. If you're a distributor, they want to call the factory. They want to go factory direct. You know, everybody wants to wants to cut out a layer of cost, a layer of overhead, you know? If you're the manufacturer, <laughs> they can't cut you out, right? I mean, like you're, you're, going, you're going back to the source. You know, at, at the time, it used to be a steel company called LTV. That's how old we are. LTV steel down in the flats. I said, you want, you want to cut me out? Call LTV yourself and buy your own steel. But there, there's no LTV anymore, but you could say call Metal and, and buy yeah, your yeah, own yeah. steel, you know? Yeah. Um, little did we... Realize, you know, the world changed a lot in the last 35 years. Now, of course, we have to compete with China and India and Vietnam and, you know, Mexico, all over the world. So the globalization has really impacted us a lot. So uh, go around the manufacturer and just offshore. <laughs> but we, we compete successfully with offshore because we have very low labor content. In our, like I said, we have a very high sales per employee, which translates to a very low labor content. Yep. Yep. And how, how important is businesses like yours for Cleveland? You know, I mean, talk to us about. Oh, you know what? Go ahead. I mean, let me finish. The nobility. I wanted to talk about nobility. And, then, and that, that's what I was getting at was it's noble being the manufacturer. You know, you're actually creating value. You're not, you're not just adding cost to this, to this product that you're bringing. You're not like, a, I'm not saying a rep or a distributor or, or you know, a broker doesn't add value. They, there, there's value. Otherwise they wouldn't be in business. Mm -hmm. But when you're the manufacturer and you buy a dollar worth of steel and you beat it into a shape and you sell it for a dollar twenty or a dollar fifty, you've added that value, that fifty cent value. You've truly created value, you know, and that's why I felt it was noble. I had a friend that was a stock um, a commodities broker, and and he after college, you know, when I when I went into the manufacturing, he was just in awe of the whole concept of. He said, "I don't add any." He was he was speaking. He said, "I don't add any value." I just add cost. Yeah. I just buy things and sell them more. He said, add any value. But what you do is noble. You're adding value. You're creating wealth. You know, they say, uh, I can't remember who said it, but somebody famous said, uh, only true wealth creation is mining, manufacturing, and agriculture. Because you're creating something, not just moving money around. Yep. So, yeah. Sorry for interrupting. I like that. No, no, no. I like that. Um, you mentioned on your site the need for diversification and flexibility in terms of new customers and processes. Are there any new verticals that Talon is pursuing? The, the, I was thinking about this. You know, uh, the, the one thing that, I, that we've been working towards 
for quite a while, and we are, it's, it's a big issue in manufacturing, is automation. Doing more with less labor, having one machine do many operations. Hmm. And if you, if you know what progressive die metal stamping is, we take a coil of steel and we put it into a die that's inside of a press. And the press goes up and down here. I'm, I'm moving my hands, there you go. Yeah. The coil goes into the press and the press goes up and down. And every station in the die, another operation gets done to this strip of steel. And then at the end, the last hit, the finished part comes off. So it's not really an automation in the, in the popular use of the term automation. Automation now, we've, we've got automations that will do sawing and drilling and tapping and you know, maybe deburring. And then at the end, the, the, a finished part comes out. But a progressive die is similar to automation. You have many operations going with only one person just watching the, 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 the machine that's, that's running, you know? So we've been in, I like to say like we've been in automated processes forever. It's kind of in our, in our DNA, it's a part of what we do. But now what we have to do is we have to make uh, more complex parts. Like for instance, there's a part that we would make out of an aluminum extrusion. Traditionally it was sawn and put into a milling machine that would drill it and, and maybe tap it and maybe countersink it, you know, make a, mach you know, a machine center work. Mm -hmm. And it would take 30 seconds to make a part. We figured a way to put it into a punch press. We would shear it. We would, you can, you can do, you can do the uh, tapping, drill, you can do piercing instead of drilling and you can do tapping in a punch press. So we would, we would do all these operations in a punch press and have make one part a second instead of one every 30 seconds, which is an example of an automation. And uh, it's, it's all about, it's all about value add, getting the most value add for, you know, we can't compete with uh, Asia or Mexico on labor costs. So we have to do it on uh, efficiency and productivity improvements. Yep. In other you know, ways. The machine work, not the person. I saw you mention on your site um, LEDs and solar panels. Is that was that a new thing for you guys? Clean tech, LED, wind, and solar uh, have been in our front of mind forever. You know, mm -hmm. uh, not not just because make the planet a better place and you know, you know not pollute and all that. that. That's of course good and that's what we're. But my my first company in nineteen seventy seven was called Energy Efficiency. There was two oil embargoes in 73, 74, I was in high school. And you know, the, the first oil embargo and there wasn't, there wasn't enough gas for cars. It was lines at gas stations. It was crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. And then uh, in 78, 77, 78, I was out of college. And, uh, but when I was in college, the professors, I studied engineering and the professors just pounded into us all the time about this energy thing, this energy uh, issue we're gonna have to get around. We have to save more energy as a, as a, as a, war, as a country, but as a world. And uh, the second oil embargo was in 78 and I was selling insulation. I was an insulation contractor. So I was in the right place at the right time that, that. And uh, what it taught us, what, what it taught me was go into a disruptive industry that's gonna be very much in demand. So we went into the single ply roofing industry, which is a new way of putting on uh, commercial roofing where you would have one high performance polymer layer instead of many layers of, of asphalt, which was kind of the old school way. So it was a very disruptive industry that took a, at the time it was a $16 billion industry that 8% of the industry was single ply, which was our target market when we started the company. By uh, a few years ago, single ply accounted for 80% of a $25 billion industry. Wow. So we grew up, we grew up with the industry. And uh, so we wanted to, we wanted to repeat those successes with, with other things. So we did it with LED lighting we got into lighting 10 and 15 years ago. 
There used to be, actually, we, 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 I shouldn't say 10. We've been in lighting for 25 years because GE's in Cleveland and we made parts for GE a long time ago. But it wasn't one of our specialties like it is now. Got it. But uh, uh, we, we, we saw there was going to be a major sea change in, in the lighting industry where it all went to LEDs. And it happened fast. It happened over about five or 10 years. LEDs went from just a little sliver of a $100 billion industry to really virtually taking it over. And what years? All fast. I want to say, I'm just, I'm kind of guessing here, but I want to say about 2010. Okay. From about 2010 to 2020. Okay. You know, I mean, you go, to the, you go to the lighting show now, it's LEDs. Every booth, every kind of lighting, whether, whether, it's, whether it's a flashlight or it's a stadium light or it's a traffic light or it's a computer, uh, computer I mean, appliance, any, anywhere there's lighting, it's done with LEDs now. Yeah. And uh, it didn't used to be that way. It used to be, well, LEDs was one of about seven or eight different uh, uh, methodologies for creating lumens. Um, so we, we, we had a, we've had great success in the LED lighting industry. We also have great success in the solar industry. When we got into solar 10 years ago, it was, uh, it was obviously a fraction of the size today. I mean, yeah. think about it. Did you know anybody with solar energy back then? Now, oh, everybody has friends with solar on their houses. And if you're in, in major markets like California or, or New Jersey or the Carolinas or Florida, it's everywhere. I mean, it's, you just see it everywhere. And it's still in its infancy. It's still only a couple percent market penetration. So it's going to be a huge industry for a long time. We got in in the early days. Uh, it was kind of like the Wild West, and it was um, it was a lot of fun. It's still a lot of fun. It's a great industry. You know, it's it's populated by uh, people that are trying to do good work and save. You know, do it's it's like you know, you're saving uh, saving energy. You know, you're getting energy from the sun. Who could be against solar? How can how can you be <laughs> against solar? It's like being against puppies or apple <laughs> pie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've had great success in those all, all three of those industries. And now the fourth one that we're, uh, we're uh, having success in also is electrification of transportation, electric vehicles. That's one of the next big disruptive things. It's only the same thing. It's only a few percent market penetration. We're, we're pretty early in it. And uh, it's going to be a drastic transformation uh, of our society as the electrification of cars go. Agreed. Agreed. Um... So speaking of awards, I know you mentioned a couple of those uh, earlier, but you were recently named to the Smart Business Smart 50, uh, which is a huge accomplishment. Congratulations. But uh, being mentioned among some of the top names in the region, what, what does that honor mean to you? I, I think it's great. I mean, I, I like to say they can't love or can't see you. So I don't need it. I don't suffer from a poor self-image. I don't need these awards to make me feel good about myself. I do it. So we get recognition. Uh, so when a customer or a potential customer comes to our, our office, they look on the wall and they see plaques everywhere and they see statuettes and you know, little, uh, what do you call those, tombstones everywhere for all these awards. Um, it's kind of independent verification that we're great. Now, of course, the CEO says we're great. The you know, CEO t tells everybody, hey, we're a great company. Look at, you know, the salesman says you're great. Everybody takes that with a grain of salt. You know, you're just blowing your own horn. But when a, when a newspaper or Harvard or, you know, a small business news, when somebody independent has a, has a, has a beauty contest or, or a, a competition and you, when you win it, it's independent. It's big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's independent verification. It's like, I'm not blowing my own horn. Somebody else is doing it at that point. 
So uh, I think it helps. And the, the, one of the harder parts of a business, it, really the, the bottleneck for almost all businesses is getting the work, getting, getting the customers, getting, getting them to come in the door and you know, getting the business. It's not doing the work, it's getting the work. Yep. At least it seems that way to me. No, that's I agree. I agree. Job. Yeah. I think anyone in sales would agree with you too. It's like, you know, the sales yeah. is the hard part, right? They're, they're giving you the business. Now you just got to do it. It's usually the bottleneck in most businesses is, is the sales, not, yep. not production. Yep. And uh, so anything that helps us achieve more visibility and get more recognition and uh, make them, they can't love us if they can't see us. Yeah. I love that quote. It's really good. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Uh, uh, Bet awesome. I heard Bette, that from Bette Midler. Bette Midler, wow. I wouldn't have not I would not have guessed that. She was on stage with all her like a whole bunch of girls, you know, she called them her ponies. And they they, they, they she does a wonderful show. I've seen her a number of times. And she she said, Look, I tell all my girls, have a big smile, be right in front when you get a chance, get out there and make they can't make they can't love you if they can't see you. So, you know, it's the whole concept of being in front of your, well, for her, it was being in front of her customers. For, yep. me, for me, it's the same thing, being in front of my customers. I try to, you know, be in front of them as much as I can, but be in front of prospective customers also. Yep, for sure. Well, Steve, this was great. We'll get you out of here on, on this one. We always like to ask our guests to highlight another favorite local Cleveland business. And so you have a few options here. Um, you, can, you can tell us your favorite restaurant in Cleveland, or you can tell us what your favorite takeout has been, you know, since, since March. Or both? I'll do both. Uh, my favorite restaurant in Cleveland, hands down, is the Marble Room. The Marble Room, okay. The most spectacular space in the country. I mean, I've traveled all over, all over the world. That's the most spectacular dining space I've ever been in. And uh, one time my, uh, my wife said, you know, you go there a lot. Did you, uh, they must know you by now. I go, oh, no, they don't know me. I said, I'm not there that much. So I walked in, I walked, that night I went up to the bar, I sat down and ordered a martini, or no, Gina came up and goes, you want a martini, Peppy? <laughs> so I said, okay, they do, they do know me. They know you. And, uh, and then for, uh, for the local joint that we've been getting our takeout, we, we live in Chagrin Falls and we go to Burntwood Tavern. Our, so our friend owns it and he owns the chain. And uh, they treat us really good and our dogs love the burgers. And, nice. uh, but all their food is great. So we, we really enjoy going there. Awesome. Well, two, yeah, two good recommendations. We appreciate that. And, and Steve, thank you again for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, enjoy the weekend. If you're a golf guy, enjoy the masters and uh, we'll talk with you soon. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.